Sure, go right ahead. But I did want to tell you, you know, how freaking cool is this um, to be talking with you right now? It, it is just unbelievable to me because I've read about your father since I've been in the Air Force. Right. Um, and I say that because I always, um, well, I, I was a troubled airman. I'll be honest. I was a troubled airman at my first base, a little bit at my second base. You know, wasn't quite sure where I fit in yet. But it wasn't until like I was all in and I said, I'm going to make a career out of this. I'm going to do this. And I started studying my butt off trying to catch up. Yeah. And I loved the, I, first of all, the name Chief Etchberger. It just always stood out to me in the picture of him, you know, with his arms on his hips, the probably the, the most known picture of him. Yeah. He's just this super handsome guy. Uh, a piece of Air Force history. That you already got it. You you got it, right? Yeah, if you don't mind, I've got some photos to show while we talk, if that's all right with you, just to oh. tell the story. No, I love that. And I, this is a video podcast, so all this will be utilized. Okay, go ahead. But yes, he, that's the picture that I've seen. And, and I'm not kidding when that story always jumped out at me the most is that story in that picture because he just looks so happy in that picture. You know what I mean? It's just one of the, it's just one of those special pictures and special parts of studying that I didn't try to like rush through it. Like I, I legitimately tried to like take my time and read and like really pay attention. You know what I right. mean? No, a lot of people like that picture. And uh, it is, I mean, he's got the old chief stripes on there, the two above. Uh, mm -hmm. instead of the three like we have now, I think it was 91 or 94 when that changed. But anyway, um, that picture is taken in Udorn, Thailand. And that, if you look at that plane behind him, it doesn't have a tail number on it. So that is a CIA Air America plane back there. Wow. And uh, so this is, he's right now he's in transition between uh, being in the military, in the Air Force, and in a few days, he'll hand in his military ID to the to the clerk, and they'll give him Lockheed IDs, and they'll say, "Give me your uniform and name tag," and he gets on his Dickies they bought at uh, Sears, and uh, they'll fly him out to the site. Wow! I mean, just how unbelievable is that? It's like it's like a plot of a movie. You know what I mean? It's like the stuff that you only see on the big screen. And and, it, it, and this really happened to you and, and your family. And it's just, yeah. you know, you always hear about secret squirrel stuff and, and we don't always get that story or even know that the story exists. And in this, you know, rare circumstance, we do know the story now. Uh, and it is an absolutely incredible story. I just finished the Netflix episode. OK, yeah, it's so it's obviously about the site up there. Yes. And, uh, I talked to John Daniel, who's the only living guy that's left of the three that dad saved. And John said, that was pretty good. They did a pretty, pretty good job. And if you go back and look at that again, Josh, you'll notice that uh, um, the guy who plays dad is Oliver Hudson. And I don't know if you're old enough to know who uh, Goldie Hawn is. That's her son. Um, and uh, uh, Kate Hudson's uh, brother. Mm. And anyway, he called me. They were in production. And he goes, what do you want me to know about your dad? 
And I said, you know what? This is going to sound really dumb, but he was left-handed. Mm -hmm. So if you guys want to make this right, if you go back and watch the video, he's shooting that M16 left-handed. So he respected that and said, you yeah. know what? Um, you know, because actors, they take that stuff serious, you know? Um, Absolutely. And so I, I love that you brought that up and that he... I mean, that would be hard to do. Think about it. Like you have to consciously, not only are you acting and trying to embody this person and recreate history. So it's a little more like you have to right. pay extra attention, right? You can't yeah. just make something up. Right. And now he has to focus on using his left hand. But I love that he did do that. And I, I, I didn't notice at all. I mean, he did. He yeah. did a phenomenal job. He, he did a great job. And uh, my brother, Steve and his wife and Tracy got to go up and watch them do the rescue scene because they, they live in Southern California and that's where everything was filmed. And if you watch the other seven episodes of the Medal of Honor, you can sort of tell that the backgrounds and the, and the vegetation are kind of all the same, but uh, of all those episodes, but uh, yeah, they did a great job. And uh, he, I mean, you can't get every single thing, you know, correct. You're trying to embody you know, the, the essence of, you know, what was going on? Why were they there? And what did he do? Um, no, I loved it. I love, I love that. It's a mixture of you guys. I mean, everything about it. I love, I love that it's a reenactment. So, you know, it's one thing to read it, but it's another thing to see it. I, I feel like even if it's not 100% spot on, it still helps us imagine it a little bit better. <clears throat> it makes John, it a John yeah, John, like I said, the guy that uh, Dad saved, and then the author of the book that I sent you, uh, Matt Chief Chief Proetti from uh, Public Affairs in the Air Force. Uh, the three of us got our heads together and said, you know what, we can't find a single thing that we want to say bad about this. It, That's awesome. It's really, you know, because it was just, and part of that is they were in touch with our family uh, during production and before that, and they had copies of the book so they could see that, and you know, they just had, uh, they wanted to do it right. And they did a heck of a job. They really did. And the interviews with you guys love the interviews with the family. Um, and then seeing you guys at the white house, like just that the fact that they included all that, I mean, it absolutely sent the message. Like they hit the mark. You know what I mean? Like they nailed it. I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and I'm very honored to talk to you. I'm, I'm, you know, like I said, I read about your father for years and I was a troubled airman. I never thought in a million years that I would, I would talk to uh, a legend as yourself and as your father. Um, so it is really cool and really special to me. So thank you so much for spending time with me. I know you've been on my buddy's podcast, uh, Joe Bogdan on the Llama Lounge, yeah. Trip Bodenheimer on the shadows. Those are two uh, Air Force podcast buddies of mine um and i did listen to those episodes as well and, and tori baldwin and i are good friends too so <laughs> so yes yeah, so this is some like spiritual stuff going on tori baldwin is the one who said hey you gotta you gotta talk to Corey etchberger like you gotta get in touch with him um and coincidentally when i interviewed tori um her story focused on the loss of her little brother and again, we just we're picking dates. I think we even rescheduled it twice because we just couldn't get it right. And when we finally I know did, what you're going to say already. Go ahead. <laughs> when we finally did record the episode, it would have been her brother's birthday that, or it was her brother's birthday that day. 
they spent the whole day at the San Francisco bridge having this really beautiful family day. And then she ended that day talking all about her little brother. Um, and I just thought that was like so beautiful. And then to add an extra layer of it, she recommends that I reach out to you. I'm familiar with you from my buddy's podcast and obviously from studying. And I said, you know what I do? I, I would love to talk with him. Uh, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to see if he'll do this. And we're talking now. We did not. We just picked a random date. You know, like I just sent you a date. That was the next available that I had. And it's today, March 11th, which is the anniversary of your father's passing which was March 11th, 1968. Yeah. So that's some spiritual stuff going on. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's, that's like uh, them, like giving a wink at us. Like, Hey, I'm here. I'm still here. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. It's, uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's just a coincidence. I agree with you. Um, it's definitely so not coincidence. It is definitely not. Uh, special things happen when we, when we come from a place of love and remembrance, there, there is a connection there. I really do believe that. So here's how I start every episode though. I start every episode by going through the hero's gauntlet with you, which is three questions that I have set up for you. Okay. And, you do, and we don't script this. We just, we just go with the three questions. Now, recently I've made this thing where you have to do three questions to end the interview too. Now here's where yours is special. <laughs> you notice that I put on Facebook, hey, if you have a question, let me know. And I think I have four. That's great. So I have four questions. One being my dad. Uh, my dad served uh, for 26 years. And both my grandparents served on both sides of my family. And so like the uniforms that your father's in, you know, my, my dad remembers those uniforms. <laughs> He right. remembers seeing his dad in those uniforms and then <laughs> and then my dad wore them too, uh, only for a short time during tech school. He they changed the uniform on him. But like he loved he uh, I told him I was talking to you. So he did research it. He's he was familiar with the story and he thought it was too cool that we were talking because he you know, he's kind of a history buff himself. And so he sent a question too. I haven't read any of the questions. OK, I I'm, I'm happy. I Nothing too personal and nothing too whatever. I'm, I'm open to anything. And if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> and before we start too, I do want to say thank you for this amazing book. Yeah. I got the book. I cannot wait to read it. You've got the, the bust on the back here, yeah. which I yeah. love. So the Senior Academy down in Maxwell. Absolutely incredible. And as you can see all day today, yeah. I've been wearing his stripes right here. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Loved it. Honored to. Okay. So we're going to go into the first question here for the hero's gauntlet. <laughs> and that first question is, well, actually I have to, I have to preface it with how I felt today. So, you know, I was on the playground with my kiddos, watching them play, watching them have a good time, looking at your book that you sent me here. And I realized like, wow, like Chief Edgeberger passed away today, like today, a day like today, you know, but how blessed am I for heroes like him where I'm sitting here enjoying life in America and watching my kids play on this playground because of heroes like him. And so it was very uh, powerful for me to look at his picture on the book 
and think about him today and really just be thankful for someone like him. And so my question, my first question is, how do you feel on March 11th? Well, um, as you may or may not know, March 11th for the Etchberger family is actually a bit, little bit bittersweet. The bitter part, of course, you know about, um, and, and you'll see in the book, and I don't, you know, I don't want to read the whole book to you, but uh, his first grandchild was born the same day he died. And uh, so Tracy is her name. Obviously, she's 54 years old. <laughs> she's 54. Yeah, she's 54 years old. She was on the Netflix yeah, movie. She in got there. interviewed. Yeah. I love I love that she was born that day. Like, it, it's like part of his legacy in a way it's so okay. i thought i thought that was beautiful so anyway um my mom uh who passed away in 1994 wanted to make uh tracy's birthday um i guess i'm gonna say always special so instead of having just one day march is her birthday month Wow. So the whole month is, is a time to celebrate. Yep. Wow. And we get together on the phone and talk and um, that kind of stuff. And so it's, um, like I said, bittersweet. Uh, it's been 54 years. So it's, you know, that whole, you know, thing of, you know, when I was nine years old of him dying is kind of been, you know, softened a bit. Um, it, you know, of course, closure is never the right word, Josh, but um, like I said, softened, and you just sort of look to, as you were saying earlier, you sort of look to the positives and what um, the Edgeberger family uh, decided with this happening at the Medal of Honor ceremony, our response was, what good can come from this? Absolutely. That's a way to, to honor that person kind of doing what, what they would have done. Right. Right. You're, you're basically impacting other people's lives the way he would have had he still been here. That's, and that's, that's kind of what it that, is. That's exactly why he sent you that pin because the chief expert foundation that we formed is about education. It's about helping air force families. It's about supporting, you know, air force personnel, um, and we also do a little special something in honor of our mother during the holidays as well. So, um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, maybe Medal of Honor recipients who went to college, which dad never did, of course, um, you know, might use scholarships or grants or whatever. And we sort of said, so where is the legacy here? What, what is his, you know, legacy? And our came up with leadership. In fact, I just talked to the Pissenbarger ALS uh, um, sorry, I'm going to talk to them on March 21st. I talked to uh, uh, a different ALS the other day, and they want to know. They always want to know what you know. What would your dad say about this? Uh, you know, what 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 do you think his? Because honestly, I I never served in the military, and if you want to talk about why that is, I'm happy to do it. Uh, so this is our way to serve. Absolutely, and. You know, coming from someone who has served, I've been in almost 18 years now. <clears throat> I would say what you're doing 
is serving. Um, like the family members, the support, remembering the history, honoring people, and then making positive impact on airmen's lives. Yep. That's huge. That's that's absolutely huge. That changes people's lives. That could turn a, a, a four-year enlistment into a whole career because they won this award <laughs> and they learned about your father. So the impact is monumental. So I just want to tell you from an Thank active you. duty person, keep going because it, it definitely you. helps. Well, that, and so that, that, that's our... That's our March 11th sort of thing. We, we, you know, maybe not mourn, but we think about, you know, his death. And then we say, Tracy, excuse me. And then we say, let's go. Let's continue this. We got more to do. Absolutely. I love that. That's beautiful. Definitely keep going. Yep. Okay. Second question. The moment, was there a moment where you felt the presence of your father the most? I, that's a tough one to answer. Um, and I, I might want to say, I might want to say on the, on the bus ride, because the Air Force and the Pentagon picked us up from the hotel to go to the Medal of Honor ceremony. And uh, I had a I don't know if I have the picture that I actually had with me. Just excuse me for just one moment. I don't have it. It wasn't the iconic picture that you had, but a different picture of him I had in my coat pocket. So on your ride to that Medal of Honor ceremony, you have the picture at the White with House. him. Yep. And I at took the White it House. I took it out and showed it to everybody, and they said, What are you doing? <laughs> You know, I, I, I could definitely, you know, riding on like a bus, that, that moment of transportation, knowing that you're about to, your whole life's about to change. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. That, that's, that's a life-changing event that you guys went but through. But we didn't really know what was going to happen. We, we had, like Tracy said in the video, I'm sorry, I didn't the picture, but it doesn't really matter. Um, like Tracy said in the video, I thought that was the end. We didn't know that was the beginning. That was the beginning of like that the legacy the and yeah. The foundation, the legacy. Right. Well, I, I'm very thankful for Barack Obama and his White House team for doing that. I mean, because like they really did like cement the legacy with that moment, you know, and, the, and, and for you guys too to honor you and to help you heal, I think is just tremendous that they did that like that's absolutely incredible so that's your brothers uh rich and steve yes steve on the far left and that's myself in the middle and then rich was in the middle for the president um unbelievable you you got the medal of honor handed to you guys from barack obama himself that's unbelievable yeah and, wow uh, yeah, i have to tell you uh there's not many people probably in the world or maybe, or, you know, maybe not the world, but for two days, I had the ear of the president of the United States, the vice president, you know, now president, chief of staff, Norty Schwartz, uh, the chief master sergeant of the Air Force uh, um, at the time, secretary of defense, and at least another high off, you know, high people. 
And to every one of them, you know what I said? Hmm. I said, my father would be very proud of this Air Force. And it was because exactly what you said, Josh, it's how they treated us, how they treated him. And eventually we're going to get around to the fact that he wasn't the only guy that was killed on that mountain that night. But um, uh, the Air Force, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, eventually. In 1968, on that March 11th, pretty much, and I'm not being critical here, I'm just telling you the facts, uh, pretty much disowned the Etchberger family. You know, they didn't want this blowing up in their face. This was supposed to be a covert operation. It was supposed to have no military personnel on that side at the time. And, um, but when all this comes about, and even before this, it's like, you know, the Air Force has totally, as you mentioned, a couple of the people that I've been in contact with, with other podcasts like you, and you, you see me on Facebook, you know how many Air Force friends I have. Um, it has just been fantastic to be able to come back into the family. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. <clears throat> that, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm blessed that you did. Like, I'm, I'm very happy. So are we. Like, yeah, very happy that the right thing happened, which was you guys are a part of this family forever. And I know, I know you guys don't think it's a big deal, but I think it's a big deal to go visit Air Force bases. Uh, I haven't been down to where you, where you are yet. Uh, of course, you got John Chapman down there to take care of, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've been all over the world, Dakota, uh, Ramstein, Elmendorf. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. And I'm not saying that because it's, uh, you know, it's great to go visit an Air Force base. It's great to go talk to airmen, to go stand there and shake their hands at the Pitts and Barger Airmen's Hall uh, and, and talk to them. And, and one of the things I, you mentioned this earlier, the things I like to ask uh, airmen is, why are you still here? Why are you still in the Air Force? What is it that draws you to this particular career field? And I love the answers that I get because that, that shows you what kind of a person that person is. And, you know, talking to them personally is a lot different than talking to them virtually, but hey, this is what we got and so this is what we do. So, um, right. that, that, and again, that brings me back personally into the Air Force family and making me feel a little bit more like we, we belong here. Absolutely. We're blessed to have you. Okay. Question number three. By the way, when I thought of these questions, they are a bit deep, I will say. When I thought of these questions, though, I was trying to think of things that weren't yet asked to you. You're doing good so far. <laughs> so here's the third one, third and last one I have for you. Your father, you know, passed away when you were still a young child. So there might have been a lot of things on your mind or that you wanted to, you know, ask him. That that's often the case when someone passes away unexpectedly. Is there anything that you wish you could ask him and have a conversation about now? I think basically the answer would be, and I have had uh, before his brother passed away recently. So dad had a brother who was five years older than him who had been in the Navy had top secret clearance, but dad never told him anything about what was gonna happen. And then there are a couple other people uh, that dad went to high school with 
that uh, he knew. And, uh, you know, excuse me, every time we went back to Pennsylvania between missions, we would always go back to Hamburg, Pennsylvania, which is where he grew up. And so he kept in contact with, with his friends and stuff. And what I'm getting at here is that I'd say that's about half and half of the people think that dad knew he was not coming back. And the other half said, no, these guys are going to go do their mission for a year and then they'll be home. And so I guess that would be the question. You know, what did you, what did you, what did you think about this mission? And not just so much, why did you do it? But why did you guys stay up there that night? You know, when, when you, you could have easily have come home the previous day. And uh, so. Yeah, no, that is, that is a, a great question because they could have left and didn't. So it does make you wonder you know, was the intent all along to never leave. And, and, and I always say that these guys were told they were going to bring an, an early end to the Vietnam War and save American lives. I mean, that's what I usually say, um, because that's sort of the narrative that I've been told over the years. And I think that's probably true um, because, and, you know, you just showed the cover of the book at all costs. And as you'll see in there, Chief Crowetti, who wrote the book, um, you know, why is that the why is that the uh, why is that the title of that book? Because those guys, with no weapons provided to them, were hold were told to hold that hill at all costs. That that's what that's what the telegram came through that told those guys, actually to the commander, and then the commander uh, relayed that to them. So these guys are basically, you know, it is an important, really important uh, piece of machinery that we have, electronics. Nobody in the world has that kind of radar system besides the United States. And if that falls into Russian hands or North Vietnamese and then into Russian hands, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen to our, our, our future in, in the Vietnam War. And you got to remember 1968, uh, the Tet Offensive had just happened in January of 68, and everybody had found out that the uh, war was not quite going as well as they thought it was going. And this happens, the fall happens in March of 68, and they're basically telling the guys, you got to stay there. you gotta, you got to hold that mountain. Mm. And eventually they, they did, as you saw in the video, which is true, they did get it some M16s. Um, but... Uh, you know, stay that's there a, and, and do your mission. Definitely. That's, um, you, it's, it's kind of like the weight of the world was on their shoulders. You know, I must, I, I imagine it must've felt that way. Um, they're, they're isolated on a secret mission and their mission could dictate where this war went. And so that that's right. the patriotism that they had is just unreal to, yep. to, to go on that mission and then to, at all costs defended was just, wow. It's unbelievable. So you passed the hero's gauntlet. You did fantastic. The <laughs> answers were amazing. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And thanks for being vulnerable and transparent. Um, and just open to, to answering this stuff from your heart. I can tell you're speaking from the heart and, and 
I know it's not easy and, and, but I, I really appreciate the, the vulnerability and sharing your, your thoughts and the story. So thank you for that. Okay. So let's start with you growing up with your dad. Um, I know you do have some childhood memories. You, you often talk about like playing football. Look at that. It's the cutest baby you've ever seen. I'm telling you right now. No, it really is. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Wow. Adorable little child. Um, but yeah, I, I just want to hear about growing up, uh, with your dad and, and how the memories that you do have, like your fondest memories growing up with him, you know, what can you tell us about growing up with him? How, how did that go? And where did you guys live? I know you lived in some pretty unique places. We did. Uh, so dad was stationed at Hill Air Force Base. I'll go back one photo here. Uh, he and mom, uh, eloped from Hill Air Force Base to Arizona to get married in 1956. And then my brother Rich was born in Salt Lake City in 1957. Uh, Back then, Hill Air Force Base, I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but back then uh, it was part of the Salt Lake City Airport. So it wasn't a separate base at that time. Um, And from 57, we go to Morocco, Africa, which is where I was born. And uh, dad is running, radar missions out of Spain with B-36s. Now, you got to, you know, the context here is the Cold War, right? 10 years after the end of World War, 15, whatever years after the end of World War II, and we're trying to keep the rescues at bay, you know, the big bear red giant. And so these guys are kind of getting as close as you can to Russia without actually being there. I know this is kind of a bit uh, current events-like, but anyway, um, so I was born there. Obviously, um, it's very hot in <laughs> Morocco, Africa. Yeah, I bet. And, and uh, dad gets transferred to Bismarck, North Dakota in the winter of 1961. So mm. we go from 115 degrees <laughs> and Bismarck, which is kind of like Grand Forks, you've ever been there, uh, you know, minus 20 degrees. And uh, we spent six years there. Uh, now, I said Bismarck, notice I didn't say Minot, and I didn't say Grand Forks. Uh, they were actually uh, uh, stationed, we were stationed at a fort, Fort Lincoln down in Bismarck, and they were running beef, I don't know why we were there, why not Minot, I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, we've got, that was a shutter bug, so we've got tons of 35 millimeter slides of B-52s flying over the house. And So he was taking uh, pictures of those? He was, and I've talked to folks, I've been to Minot to visit them, and they said, yeah, probably he had some kind of like trans- transponder or something that received information. They were sort of practicing bomb runs, if you will, uh, like probably in your house or the garage or up in the attic. And um, so he was probably using those pictures as part of, uh, you know, whatever his job was there. But he was a crack radar guy. He was, you know, working on... Uh, what was called radar bomb scoring. So <clears throat> maybe the pictures were for like trying to really like nail down the accuracy of the bombs from That's someone. That's exactly like- what I was thinking. That's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. I bet it was so something anyway, like that. Yeah. So when he, he went to tech after BMT, he went to tech school at uh, Keesler and uh, he got into what was then was called RBS radar bomb scoring. 
you know, how can we get more accuracy out of dropping bombs from a plane? So this is, you can see where all this stuff is going. You know, B-52s back then, it was called gravity bombing. You open the bomb bay doors and let go of 200 bombs, and you go, gosh, I hope that hit something. Uh -huh. uh, you know, many bombs, one target or a few mm. targets. And of course, you know, being the Air Force, you know what we have now. And so that's why this radar system that we're going to talk about here in just a moment was so important because that's the intermediate step between gravity bombing and what we have now. Uh, from Bismarck, um, we go to Clark Air Base in the Philippines. And uh, Clark Air Force Base, of course, was the main uh, base uh, for people launching off, all service branches, launching off to Southeast Asia for the Vietnam War. And uh, I thought it was actually pretty fun. Uh, and you stopped, you asked about, you know, some memories of dad. That's, so I'm now like five years old, five to seven. So now I finally have got some memories, you know? And two of the things that I really remember is that uh, the, the, the lot across from our house, it was off base, uh, was just a lot. There was no house there, but the local farmer would bring his water buffalo over there to, uh, to graze on there. And dad sort of said to us, hey, when the farmer comes over and you guys over there playing football or whatever with your cars, you guys get out of the way and let him graze his water buffalo. Now those water buffalo are black and they've got the really big. Yes, uh, I was stationed know. in Guam and I remember those things are okay. massive. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and it didn't take much for us to get out of the way of those. Right. Uh, and the other thing that I thought was pretty cool about him, um, again, I'm five or six years old. So, you know, these are actually pretty, I'm going to say superficial, but it's just what I remember. Actually, I have one more thing. Uh, is that he would kick a football with flip-flops on. How did that thought, not, like, hurt his foot? <laughs> I, I know, but, you know, it's like, so when he, what I'm get, kind of getting at is when he got off duty, he wanted to be with his, I'm not saying he didn't want to be with his wife, of course he didn't, but he's got two young sons. Uh, he wants to be with his kids, and he wants to go to his fishing you know, play, not played football, kicked a football, threw the ball for us. You know, we got our gloves on, we hit, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the other thing that I really remember, and I, I think this is why the guys with this with, that served with him liked his leadership style. And it might sound a little bit uh, maybe tough, but when he said something, that's the way it was. You know what I mean? Mm. So, you know, all right, boys, come on in for dinner. And, you know, just a minute, we'll be there. We're doing whatever. And it was like, you know, he'd come out of the house, very calm. Like, nope, we're going to dinner now. When I say come in, you come in. And you know what? As a, as a leader, if, if, you can, if, if you can, I guess, have that kind of, not control, but uh, presence among the people that you are, are leading, and they trust you to, to, to live up to what you say you're going to do. Uh, and I guess this kind of goes back to the whole, why did they stay on the mountain kind of a thing? Because that's what he signed up for. You know, he signed up to go do that. And uh, the assignment was actually for a year. Um, so anyway, those are the three things that I really remember, remember about him. Uh, anything after that, um, we were stationed in Illinois for a little bit of time. And then what happens, of course, is that he is tapped for this mission in Laos. And the Air Force says to the guys, okay, if you want to 
He gets tapped for this mission, and there are 19 guys on the operations crew that are going to run the radar, and there are 30 guys on the setup crew. The setup crew guys go in there ahead of time, set, set the radar system out, get on the Chinook helicopter, and they leave, and then they bring in the operations crew. So those 19 guys are part of two different crews, and what they do is they take week, you know, they're on a week, off a week. So they go back to Udorn, Thailand, where I showed you that picture earlier, and the other crew goes back to the, to the site to run the radar. And so because, uh, so he signs paperwork that says that he is no longer part of the Air Force. He has been discharged, discharge papers is what they are. Um, and I've got a copy of those. And uh, so that they can give them Lockheed Aircraft Service uh, IDs and they will be under um, civilian status. So if they're caught, captured, or killed, uh, US Air Force and government can deny that we didn't have any Air Force personnel there because we had signed the Geneva Convention in 1962 saying we wouldn't have anybody, any military personnel there. So this was the what they call the plausible deniability. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have these, quote, civilian guys up there. Uh, we're not going to give them any military weapons so that if something does happen, we can say we didn't have any military people there. Um, and at the same time, the reason I showed this, this is my mother. That's the phone on the wall that I'm going to talk about a little bit. Um, and it also shows you back in the day, the way mom and dad communicated with each other. Kind of so anyway, they had that seven-inch reel-to-reel tape thing, and they would send reel-to-reel tapes back to each other. I remember getting on the microphone and, we went to school today in second grade, and you know, uh, and I would love to say I have a whole stack of those tapes, but mom unfortunately got rid of pretty much anything that had after he was killed. Um, so so you, that was a way you talked to your dad. Yeah, he had a he had a real real thing at his place in Udorn, and we had one at the house, um, and we would talk back and forth to each other. We didn't really do letters. Interesting. So, so it was like sending a voicemail. Yeah, on a tape. And then he'd put it on there and spool it up and hit play. And so you would have to physically mail that tape. Yes. Yes, exactly. Wow. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's basically this. It's basically listening to a letter. I mean, but you have to take the time to say it, record it and then mail it only for him you know, to. You know, we were kids. We didn't, you know, we, you know, all right, mom's going, okay, now tell dad what you did today. You know, well, we went to school and then went down to my father, a grandfather owned a five and dime shop. Um, and so we went down to grandpa and had ice cream down there, whatever. Um, so anyway, he goes on this mission, but before he does, uh, like I was saying about my mother, she is I'm almost backwards here. She goes uh, down to the Pentagon, as do all the wives. And the Air Force says, um, here's where your husband's going to be. Here's why you're not living on an air base, because he's no longer Air Force. He's civilian status. So that's why you're living, you know, in a civilian place. Um, and uh, uh, here's where he's going to be. Here's what's going to happen. And oh, by the way, now that you know all this information, here's some uh, paperwork that says that you're not going to open your mouth about anything you know about until the Air Force and the government tells you can. So they don't want the, you know, 
they're trying to keep this as hush hush as they possibly can. Uh, wow. And yeah, and so that's they pretty don't. scary. That's scary. It's pretty, like it's pretty scary. I mean, when you have to separate from the military to go on this mission, that's that's serious. <laughs> and then your spouse has to sign paper. I mean, it, it doesn't get any, you know, r- more real than that. I mean, that is intense. Yep. I'll show you this one here in a minute. So these guys go on this mission uh, and you were asking. So at that point, again, you got to remember, Rich and I are like eight and nine years old. I mean, we've been, I don't want to say military brats, but you know what I mean? I, I told you how, you know, what is just kind of like, here's how things are. If I agree with you, let's go with it. If not, it's my way or the highway. And that's just the way things work. Uh, that's how he was brought up and that's how he raised us. And uh, so we don't really question, I mean, people go, what, didn't you think it was kind of weird that you're dead? It's like, no, you do what your parents tell you to do when you're eight years old. Don't know how old your children are, but you know, like you know, you may not be, you know, you have to do this, but it's like, okay, no questions. We're doing this. We're going here. We're gonna live here. And of course, mom didn't tell us where dad went, and not like a seven-year-old even had any clue of what the heck was going on anyway. So those guys get discharged in October of '67. Um, get handed their Lockheed Aircraft Service IDs. Uh, at Udorn, like I said earlier, and the two different crews trade off every week. So one goes up one week, one goes back the other. Um, and uh, the site is immediately successful. So for folks who need a little bit of uh, geography here, the, uh, the site is about here. It's on the book. <clears throat> yeah, in the book. Yeah, there you go. Yep, that's it. So yeah, it's um, it's up in this uh this little corner here. Of course, it's it's reversed um, yep. with my webcam here, but yes, I can see exactly where it would be. So there's what, what I call like a little knuckle there in Laos that sort of sticks in the North Vietnam, and what that does is places the radar about 115 miles from Hanoi. So what the, what the the goal here was was to bring obviously an early end to the Vietnam War and President Johnson and his folks in the White House and Defense Department thought, if we can bomb Hanoi, we might be able to bring a uh, early end to the Vietnam War and bring Ho Chi Minh, who was the president of North Vietnam at the time, to the peace table. Now, they had tried, the administration had tried not bombing anything, and the North Vietnamese continued to build roads and to make their way down to uh, South Vietnam. And as I said, the Tet Offensive occurred in January of 68. So they had already tried that. And so now this is kind of the result of, okay, peace talks are not working. Let's bomb them. And so the idea of this radar system, again, up till now, the technology is the B-52s or whatever planes uh, need to have a uh, clear line of sight to their target. They can't, uh, they can't bomb through um, uh, clouds and bad weather and bad weather is there from like October to March. So mm. if you've ever been to that part of the world, it rains all the time. And, um, so this system, if you know where the radar is and you know where the target is, what you can do is use the radar to guide the plane to the target. 
by talking to the pilot and telling them what vector to fly, how high to fly, and then when to drop their bombs. And so that's what they did. And it was immediately successful. And the North Vietnamese figured out that all that activity out there in this knuckle of Laos was responsible for them getting their shipyards bombed, bridges, roads, all kinds of stuff. So, so the bombing was was so accurate, which it probably prior to this system was not. No. And suddenly it became so accurate and such a you know a pain in their rear end with trying to build up this the Ho Chi Minh Trail and their all all sorts of stuff. They thought, you know what, something has to be they have to still be in this in this country because this has never happened before. Suddenly they're better and suddenly they're actually wiping our stuff out. Where are they hiding? We know they're there. It kind of they kind of came to that conclusion, right? Exactly. So it worked too well. Uh, pretty much. Yep, you're exactly right. So this site was on top of a mountain in Laos uh, with sheer cliffs on three sides like you see right here. Uh, that is a massive, massive mountain. Yeah, it's a mile high. The view must have been unreal from a mile they high. Said, they said it was great. Um, oh, my gosh. must have felt like you're living in the clouds. There's Wow. The living quarters. Latrine, you can see the latrine there on the far left side. I'll show you a picture of the radar here in just a minute. Um, but you see that uh, there's jungle all around it. Mm. But those trailers and the... You know, all the uh, radar equipment, it's, it's over that rock there. And it's over the rock because the CBs had gone in there ahead of time and they had blown the top of the mountain off because it was a peak. And of course, you can't build on top of that. So you have to make it flat. And the North, I mean, that activity, as you might imagine, you know, tons and tons of dynamite on top of a mountain, 14 miles from North Vietnam, did not go unnoticed. And so, as you were talking, John, they put two and two together, North Vietnamese, saying, we are just now getting this. That thing has been there. Um, they're going to take it out. I so wonder how they, they deduced that it was that specific mountain. Was it just because that's the highest mountain, so it, had, it just made sense to them? Uh, it was a lot more than that. If, uh, if you look, you know, either in that book or other stuff that I've read, there were lots of locals, I want to call them, um, uh, running around the site. And they actually found a guy one time who actually had a map in a, a, like a, a book in his, in his lapel. And they, and they found that he actually had a map of the site. So there were, there were people up there who shouldn't have been up there. It was difficult to sort of keep track of who was coming and going. Um, and so... Gotcha. There's just so many people that know know the lay of the land, and, and you know and the, they, these people these people have living in have been living in this part of the world for thousands of years, and they know their way around, and they know what's and even if they don't make it up to the top of the mountain, there's probably people down below um, who you know either live there or kind of you know get I don't want to say paid off, but are you know part of you know. Um, Maybe people you don't want to know what's going on there. I mean, they just weren't very good at, at really. Uh, so possibly word of mouth, you know. Yes. Yes. I mean, heck, we don't know. They could have even 
grab people up and question them, you know, for all we know. Right. So it sounds like, yeah, enough people knew to where that message probably made it back to them just in some fashion. So the North Vietnamese build the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos to take this site out. And what happens is in the beginning, these guys are bombing, like I said, Hanoi is about 115, 20 miles away. Um, and so in the beginning, they're bombing about 120 miles away because that's what they need to be doing. But as the trail gets closer and closer to them, they're actually not bombing Hanoi anymore. They're bombing the guys who are building the trail to get to them. Mm. And so eventually that circle gets smaller and smaller until on March 9th and 10th, before the site gets overrun on March 11th, they're actually bombing a kilometer away, which of course is about a half a mile. They're trying to keep these guys off of them. So instead of having the weapons, they're using the radar to keep these guys off of them. So they're, they're using their own equipment now to guide the bombs right in their backyard or right in front of them. You got it. Wow, that's, that's terrifying. And then all night, you just, I mean, they probably were, weren't even getting sleep. I mean, all night long, you're hearing explosions. You're looking down. You're seeing all these people who are trying to get to you. I mean, they had to have been thousands of people. Yeah. Well, and, and a week before, uh, remember I said earlier that one crew was on, one crew was off. Um, right. Uh, about a week before, I mean, they've got, I say they, the Americans have got intel that these guys are obviously coming. So what they did was they brought in both of the two radar teams to be able to run that thing 24 hours a day. So when one team is off, the other team is resting. And so that's why dad and his crew are down the side of the mountain when they're, uh, 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 when they get overrun is because the other crew was running the radar at the time. And those guys uh, are killed by the sappers almost immediately because the sappers actually don't make their way up the trail that goes up there, but they actually use uh, ropes and ladders and stuff and make their way up over those cliffs that I showed you earlier. And they go right for the radar vans and kill those guys that are sitting, uh, you know, in their, you know, doing their work. They've got no way to protect themselves and they get shot immediately. And uh, so there's one way in and one way out of this trail, right? Because it's yep. this insanely high mountain with one trail that goes straight up into it and then a sheer cliff on the other sides. And you're telling me these people climbed this mountain to get to them. It took them two days. So they're sleeping on the mountain then. Yep. Yep. That's just mind boggling. Like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. Like that. It's terrifying to think that there's people capable of that, that are coming after you. Meanwhile, you look down and just there's thousands of people down there coming after you. I mean, I just can't imagine how they were feeling. I mean, the, the anxiety, the stress must have been through the roof. Like, like I say, I, I don't really say this to Air Force people because they get it. But I talk to a lot. Of, I like to talk to a lot of school groups. And uh, I say, when you think you're having a bad day, imagine people lobbing grenades at you for five hours. Mm. <laughs> Because, you know, as you saw in the video, what they'd throw them back, dad would throw them back, or they would use the butts of their rifle and kick them, you know, uh, push them off the side of the mountain 
And then, you know what? Then there's another one sitting next to you. And uh, so it's just a. It's absolutely terrifying. I mean, yeah. And I, I remember that part in the, in the Netflix um, show where they're, they basically have them pinned down. So they, they, they come up the mountain, they ambush the guys working, right? right? That's the first people that they hit. I think yeah. they just shoot them immediately. They don't even, yeah. they just come in there guns blazing. Yeah. Right. They and taken, so they were taken prisoners, weren't taken prisoners. And uh, your dad and his crew are on the rest crew. So they're hearing gun just going off. That's how it probably started. They're just hearing yeah. all these firing and they knew, you know, they probably thought, I don't know how these people are up there shooting, but they're right. there. Um, and so once they're in, in the movie, they're kind of, uh, there's like this ledge, right. And they're all kind of huddled under this ledge down this hill. And the North Vietnamese, they don't know how many is down there and they obviously don't want to get shot themselves. So they're like, hey, just sit tight up here and we're just going to throw every grenade that we have yep. before we go down there and check. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. I mean, could you imagine being like sleep deprived, starving, thirsty? You haven't, you know, you're exhausted and you're dealing with bombs being thrown at you for five hours straight. Yeah, and then it's dark as well. So it's like you can't even really tell. You, you know? can't let your guard down for one split second. As soon as you hear that thud of a grenade bouncing next to you, you have to react or that's it. You know, you just have a couple of seconds to get rid of it. And in the movie, he was the first person to pick one to kind of give them that idea. He picked it up and like started just throwing them back at them, right. which I thought was just. <laughs> in Could you imagine being on the other end of that? You think you got these guys pinned and suddenly you're getting the grenade put back in your face. These guys, these airmen are, they're, they're uh, back to no corner. Either we fight or we, or we die. We, and so it's going to be, we're going to fight. We're going to, you know, we had no option. We got no place to go. Um, and, uh, you know, if they want to come get us, they're going to, they're going to have to fight it out. And. Uh, what do you remember the survivor saying about your dad in those moments? Um, he basically said he took charge. Uh, and what he did, what dad didn't do, he directed other people to do. Um, and so there were two guys finally left there on the ledge. Two guys got killed. Uh, Stan Sliz, who was the captain, he was actually the officer, I'm going to say in charge. And then John Daniel, um, uh, both were injured too badly to really do anything that was besides, um, uh, talked to the guys on a radio and you saw eventually they had, they brought in the sky raiders to, to bomb the top of the mountain. Uh, Dad tells, tells John Daniel to do that. So even though he's not doing it himself, you know, he's got to keep that M16 in front of him so that uh, if somebody comes down, he's ready to go. So he tells John to, this is what John told me, uh, that uh, Stan's hands were too um blown apart, I guess you could say, to be able to actually even push the button on the radio. Mm. So dad gave the radio to John and said, hey, tell them to bomb the top of the mountain. And, uh, and then uh, same thing with the um, uh, rescue helicopter that comes in in the morning. Uh, dad does the same thing. He, he 
make sure that he's guarding the path coming down to there, but telling John what to do. And uh, so, you know, I've talked to John a number of times. Like I said, he's still alive, lives, lives in Colorado. And um, I haven't seen actually very much PTS or PTSD from him. He seems very open to talk to me anytime I want to talk, but there's only so many details you really want to ask somebody, you know, right. you don't want to get too personal or, you know, why didn't you do this or why did this happen? But uh, mm. he's a really nice guy and uh, has, you know, lived through hell, obviously, and um, really appreciates, you know, what dad did for him because he wasn't, he couldn't get into a sling by himself. None of those guys could, you know, what's, what's so ironic about this um, and I want to show you a, a little uh, document here in just a moment. And so by the time Dad gets these two guys that are injured pretty badly into the sling, each individually, John Daniel goes up first and then Stan Sliz goes up. Uh, Dad uh, apparently has not even been injured at that point. So, you know, he doesn't even have a Purple Heart at that point. I say have, you know what I mean? It's earned. Um, and uh, the... Uh, and then obviously when, when he gets in the helicopter, uh, one of the guys down below, one of the enemies shoots in the bottom of the helicopter and one of the bullets goes through the bottom of the helicopter and um, uh, hits dad in the lower body. And uh, he, at that point, uh, bleeds out. And uh, But the reason I'm showing this particular document is because his Air Force records don't even show that he earned an Air Force Cross until 2005. Wow. So what I'm getting at is, and I'll show that's you. A, a that's a other... long, long time <laughs> after. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the Medal of Honor didn't happen until 2010. So, and wow. in 19 in 1998, uh, we'll talk about this here in just a moment. <clears throat> in 1998, his records didn't show that he that he ever received the Air Force Cross. So it took 30 years for the Air the Air Force to uh, recognized the Air Force Cross till 2005 for the Purple Heart and 2010 for the Medal of Honor. So they want to keep this stuff quiet. On the movie, who's the gentleman with the longer hair and the glasses? That's John Daniel. That's one of the guys that Dad saved. Who's the only living one left? Yeah, John. So it is. It's that individual that uh, yeah. it shows like a family photo with him, right? And he's talking about his purpose. Okay. The part I got to be honest, the part that like broke my heart the most was. I guess he kind of went unconscious in the helicopter, but the last thing he remembered, he was, you know, sitting next to chief. And when he came to, he was like, hey, where is he? And they said, oh, he, he died. He passed away. And he said, no, he didn't. I, I he was alive. He was he was on the helicopter with me. I just thought like you, you get off the site together. You know, he got everyone out. Yep. He got he got every survivor who was still left standing with this ambush. He got them out one after another. And then on that last one, him and another guy went up together. And then yep. that was all the survivors. They're all in the helicopter. They're flying away. And the 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 Viet North Vietnamese on the top of the, the hill see this. And they just start all firing at this aircraft. And sadly, some of those bullets penetrated through and hit him and, and an artery or something. And, and he bled out on, on the flight out of there. And then for right. his friend to, the last thing he remembered was that he was alive and they all made it. 
to then land wake and then come to and, and then learn that the guy that saved you passed away when you thought everyone's, you know, everyone on that helicopter made it out. Like that part broke my heart the most, Yeah, you know, just, just putting myself in his shoes, the person that saved you and you guys made it out together. It's like, and then to find out he didn't, it was just so heartbreaking. I, I really, really felt for him when, when he told that part of the story. Well, yeah, John said, I, I, I couldn't believe it then, then and I still can't believe it now. Yeah, so. I mean, they went through the hardest part, right? You know, they got off that mountain. And so in his mind, like, that was it. Right. So let's talk about the aftermath, because there's a, there's a lot in the aftermath. <laughs> there is. <laughs> so we're sitting at the table in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and we get a phone. I mean, I mean, nowadays, can you imagine if somebody gets killed in the Air Force calling the widow and saying, Hello, by the way, your husband got killed. No, some captain shows up with the chaplain, right? Um, right. At least I, think, I think that's the protocol. Um, instead, my mom gets a phone call. Rich picks up the phone and goes, this is Rich Etchberger. How can I help you? And uh, asks for mom. And she begins to cry. And she basically says, you know, boys, your dad's been killed. And the follow-up to that is this, which depending on how old you are, you may not even recognize a Western Union telegram. And the Western Union telegram basically says, you know, we're sorry for the loss of your husband, blah, blah, blah. But notice it's not, it's not sent by the Air Force. It's sent by Lockheed Aircraft Services. Right. I see that at the bottom there. Yeah. And so this is the, excuse me, John, the paper trail that's trying to cover this up. So she gets the phone call from the Air Force, but there's no way back in 68 to actually document. You know, there's no recording of phones or anything like that. But once it becomes uh, important to be able to document paper-wise, uh, they want to be able to show that um, this guy was a civilian and worked for Lockheed Aircraft Services. And the other thing I just want to point out is this is a, another letter. I never know which side to go on. A, a letter from um, the president of Lockheed Aircraft Services basically saying, it's with deepest regrets that I, I learned the death of your husband, Richard, who was killed performing important business for this company. We have zero, nothing from the Air Force giving wow. condolences. It's That's... all civilian status. There's no, uh, um, you know, chaplain that shows up. There's none of that stuff. And the commander of the mission, who has since passed away, but I have talked to him numerous times, he escorted Dad's body back to back to um, uh, Pennsylvania, and his superiors, general, said to him, he was a colonel, said to him. You take Dick's body back to Hamburg, Pennsylvania. You drop it off at the funeral home, and you talk to nobody. Get back in the hearse and drive back to Dover. Holy cow! And the yeah, and the um, kicker there is that I told you earlier that Dad's dad owned a five and dime store, which was exactly across the street from the funeral home. 
he would have had to have walked 20 feet to be able to give his condolences to his father. And the Air mm -hmm. Force said, don't talk to an expert, don't talk to anybody in Hamburg, deliver the body to the funeral home and get your ass back to Dover. That's brutal. That is absolutely brutal. I mean, considering he, I mean, he, he earned the medal of honor, obviously he's a, he's an American hero, an airman who sacrificed everything. And then you guys are, are just left with, sorry, here's a, you know, letter from Lockheed Martin. Yep. Like, well, that's, that's brutal. The thing is that they put him in for the medal of honor right away. Um, and it made it, I'm sure you probably know a little bit about the whole process. It starts down here and works its way up the proverbial chain of command. And it made its way, uh, recommendation made its way up to the vice chief of staff of the Air Force, General John Ryan. And he mixed it at that point and said, if we do this, again, I'm going back to the context of 1968, what things are like. If we give this guy, if we award this guy the Medal of Honor, People are going to ask questions. People are going to want to know what's going on. Where was he? You know, what rank was he? And of course, the answer was, well, he wasn't in the Air Force, to be honest with you. Um, and so they um, decided to, as you may know, award him the Air Force Cross with the understanding that when the war is over and the mission is declassified, they will upgrade it to the Medal of Honor. And so that little piece of paperwork goes in a file. And as you well know, um, people in military, uh, they move on, they retire, they move to a different base, and they forget where that little piece of paper went in the file, and nobody flags it. Because as I, you saw the, the, the thing from 2005 for the Purple Heart, they're still not even giving, they're still not even awarding a Purple Heart until 2005. And so, you know, they're just trying to, keep this under the proverbial rug. Let's not let anybody know about this. And we'll do something uh, respectful, which it was for him. Um, and this is my mother receiving dad's Air Force Cross uh, from the, the chief of staff of the Air Force, then General John McConnell. And what I usually like to ask people is, what does that look on my mom's face say to you? Yeah. She looks now, frustrated. There you go. I think that's the word right there. I, I agree with that 100%. All right. So we're going to back up a little bit. She signed those secrecy, she signed those secrecy agreement saying that she wouldn't say anything to anybody. Um, and when dad is killed and the body, the body is brought back, this is the yellowed copy from the local Hamburg paper. And it says he was a radar specialist with the U.S. Air Force. He met his death in a helicopter accident, presumably as the result of action in Southeast Asia. Wow. So <clears throat> that's what and at, at this point, do you guys know the truth at all? Or is this literally years old. so this is what you're going off of right here? Until 1995. Oh my gosh. So let me ask you this. Did you believe that? I'm nine years old. Doesn't everybody in the Air Force get an Air Force Cross for dying in a helicopter accident? I don't know any better. Right, I, yeah. 
like I tried to tell you, tried to convince you of earlier, convince you of earlier, you do what your parents tell you to do. We're good Air Force kids. We've been doing this all along. If mom and dad says this, then that's what the truth is. Mm-hmm. And look, she signed those papers. And you know what those papers basically said? I don't think it was quite this blunt. If you open your mouth, you're going to lose the benefits. And what? And I have to be uh, 100% honest here. Both the Air Force and Lockheed did everything they said in terms of death benefits. Um, that they, uh, I've got the paperwork here somewhere. I guess I'm not going to show it to you, but they reinstated that back in the Air Force on March 19th, basically saying, oh, by the way, that order we did earlier, eh, no, that's not true. He, he's been reinstated as active duty. So now, again, they got the paper trail, you know, been released from the Air Force, and now you're back in the Air Force. And now they can do these Air Force things, you know, in terms of benefits, the Air Force Cross, all those kinds of things. And then the Air Force also took out uh, death benefits, uh, insurance from um, Lloyd's of London. So I'm going to say back then, big um, life insurance checks. Mom receives one for, I think, $25,000 and one for $35,000, which back in 1968 was a heck of a lot of money. Um, So all the things that should have happened ends up happening. They did everything they said they were going to do. But for many, many, and again, I've got all of Dad's records here, for many, many years, uh, we still, it looks as though Dad is getting uh, workman's compensation benefits from Lockheed Aircraft Services in California. Um, so, and this Pentagon ceremony that I just showed you the picture of with the chief, uh, sorry, with the yeah, chief of staff, um, that was a private ceremony. I mean, there was nobody else there except for some of the high brass in the Air Force and our family, and that was pretty much it. There was, uh, and you were there official. for that too? Yeah, I was there for that. Uh, you so remember I, that day? I absolutely do. What stands out uh, about that day the most to you? Not much about this particular event. I just remember there being, um, when when I say this, I didn't know what an Air Force Cross was. It meant nothing to me, okay? I I don't know what that is. I don't know what it means. It's it's, um, actually, they gave us a tour of Washington, D.C. the day before. And that's what I remember about it. I mean, this wasn't any kind of, I mean, it was in a closed room with no windows. And, you know, Mrs. Exberger, please come up here and we'd like to present you this, you know. So it really wasn't much to me. But you know what mom does with that Air Force Cross? She takes it home, puts it in a box, puts a blanket over the top of it, and shoves it into the back of her closet in her bedroom. So literally hides it. Yeah, and the question I always ask is, why did she do that? Well, similar logic to the Medal of Honor. If that thing's floating around, so many people recognize it uh, and know how rare it is. And so there's a conversation behind that medal, right? I mean, if it's on the mantle and and you got guests coming over, I mean, that's going to jump out at certain people like, holy cow, like, what are you doing with that? People are going to ask questions, and you know what? And 
I don't like to say lying. Um, and when I say that, I mean, I don't like to say my mom was lying to us, but she was protecting us, basically. And if she tells us the truth, then little blabby little nine-year-olds are going to go off to school and go, guess what my dad got? Um, and, you know, and if that gets around, then, you know, the, you know, she's a brand new widow. She's in a home. She's in a town. She's never lived in her entire life. And she's basically protecting us. She's making sure that we have a life to be able to grow up and, you know, do our, you know, be a kid. And right. um, you're exactly right. That's, and you know what? I never really, 99% of the stuff I'm telling you, we learned since 2010. And remember Tracy said it wasn't the end, it was the beginning. So we went, I went through and looked at dad's records and gave them to Chief Proetti who wrote the book. And the two of us sat down there and I said, what is this? What is this about? And we figured it out. We, we went through and we've had that picture I just showed you of my mother for almost 54 years. And I never really knew what that look was about. But I think I got it now. I don't think mom was upset because dad didn't get the Medal of Honor. I don't think she even knew what that was, to be honest with you. I just think she's kind of saying to him, I've got to keep this secret from my kids. And I am not happy about that. Right. And I think she's kind of like, you know, props to your mom. Like, yep. I mean, she lost her husband, you know, became a single parent and then did her, did what she said she would, would, you know, promise yep. the, the air force. She kept it a secret. She did every, she, she did everything she could to give y'all a normal and good life and to keep the benefits. And so I think she's kind of like the unsung hero of like the whole story that, um, you know, I'm glad that we can honor her too, as part of this, because she, I can't imagine, you know, what she went through and how she had to stay strong for y'all. Well, I remember I said, one of the, one of the, uh, Missions of the um, Edgeburger Foundation is to honor her every year. And there was a family that lived near us in Hamburg. Uh, they were sort of down the hill, like an old farmhouse. And it was pretty, um, I'm going to say, obvious by looking at the farmhouse and the kids' clothing, going to the school bus, that they didn't, they didn't really have a, have a whole lot of you know, money. And... Um, that, uh, grandpa's store, and I told you about the five and dime, the basement was the toy store. I mean, this place was just awesome. And you could go down there and, you know, uh, of course, grandpa and grandma spoiled us. And so what mom would do, uh, I'm going to say a week or so below, before Christmas, would be to go and uh, pick out some things. She knew what the, there were boys and girls and what ages they were, wrap them up, and I don't know if it was Christmas Eve or maybe a couple of days before Christmas, uh, go down and put the gifts on their porch. Wow. That's beautiful. Wow. She's, she's awesome. She's awesome. Yeah. She's, and, and I gotta, you know, I'm, I'm married and I know Air Force spouses go through a lot. I yeah. mean, they leave their family. They, you know, forfeit a lot of their own personal goals it's tough. It's very tough. And then to lose your husband. Yeah. Your, your, uh, your mother, I'm, I'm very proud of her 
and and want to honor her as well. And although she never said it, Josh, I, I suspect probably when she did that gift giving, she probably did in her mind, she probably did the same thing, had the same thing going through her mind that we had, you know, like what good can come from this? Absolutely. Yeah. She's, she's exercising the same thing that you guys are doing now with the legacy and carrying on some, something, taking something positive, even yeah. though she had to keep it secret, right? Like she couldn't tell anyone, she couldn't share it. It was probably very isolating to, to know that and not be able to tell anyone, you know, the metal that she's got hidden in her closet under a blanket. And then she's found this creative way to, to kind of show love and, and, you know, I, I could imagine in her heart, that's something her husband would, would, you know, put a smile on his face, knowing that she was, uh, yeah. was helping these families out. So every, every year, um, uh, during the holidays, we contact, uh, um, somebody at one of the, one of the bases and say, do you know of an air force family who, you know, is kind of struggling, needs a little bit of help. Uh, will you please help me? Uh, find somebody, locate somebody at your base, and we, our foundation, would like to help them. Um, and usually, it's you know, it's not just oh, you know, it's not just money. It's like oh, you know, we have a, we've had a child who is uh, leukemia, and we have to keep driving them back and forth to to you know get them their treatments. Uh, this one uh, airman, I can't. This guy was just amazing. Um, two striper. And um, uh, this is at Hickam. And um, he uh, was, his father had passed away and he was estranged from his mother. So he wasn't talking to his mother and she wasn't talking to him, but he was in charge. Can you imagine this? It's a two striper. He had a 16 year old sister and like a nine year old brother that were living with him. So he's taking care of them. Mm, that is tough. That is tough. So those are like his dependents. Yeah. Wow. And he's probably not even, I don't know, I don't know how old a two-striper is, but uh, not very old. Uh, so we were standing around talking, and uh, we had already decided we were going to, you know, give him a little, it's usually cash, a check from the foundation. And then he said to us, yeah, it's, I don't think he was, he wasn't fishing. He just, it just came out. I said, so what does your sister like to do? Well, she's supposed to go to the prom, but I can't afford a dress for her. I said, how much is the dress? He said, ah, it's about $250. I got the foundation checkbook out. She got a dress. Oh, wow. You guys, you made her dreams come true. That's amazing. That's amazing. So it's, it's that kind of stuff that we like to do. No, I, I, I love that. I love that you found these individuals who, you know, their struggles may have gone completely unnoticed, but you guys noticed and, and you changed their lives, you know, by being there. And I, I think that's beautiful. And I know, I know your dad would be proud of that 100%. That's just the type of guy he was. He definitely would be proud of that. Well, that's what, that's what, trying to pass on that legacy. Absolutely. I mean, his story was kept secret for, 
you know, 42 years and it's just not gonna happen anymore. If we have anything to say about it. You know, I, your brother, Steve, not Steve, it was Rich, I believe, Rich. that said, Rich said uh, in the documentary, in the movie, he said he, he was angry, you know, and he acted out. He was, he was angry, frustrated, and rightfully so. Right. Um, but I, I, I really, and, and I think anyone would have felt angry, but the fact that you guys, you didn't stay angry you had every right to, you had every right to have a grudge and be bitter and angry and upset. You had every right to feel that way. Your whole family did. Um, but I just find it incredibly inspiring that like, you know, you got, like you said, welcome back to the family. Yep. And then as soon as that happened, you started giving back immediately. I think that just speaks volumes about your family and the legacy you, you, as soon as they welcomed you back, you took it with open arms and started changing people's lives immediately. Well, I appreciate that. We, we have never said no to anybody in the Air Force if they want to talk, they want me to, um, maybe not now, to show up there. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if anyone in the Air Force wants something, they, all they got to do is ask. And, and that's exactly how, how your father rolled. Right. That was him. And, and you're, you're living that now you had the opportunity, you took it with open arms and you're, you're immediately changing lives. And I absolutely love that about you and your family. And I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that we have you. We still have the Etchburgers in our lives. We still have them. And I love that. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Let's talk about the White House. Let's talk about the, the phone call. Probably the, probably the craziest phone call you've ever had. Yeah. Uh, so we had kind of gotten wind that there was something going on about May of 2010. And when I say something going on, what I mean is uh, uh, the... Uh, folks down at Randolph, which I, I'm pretty sure that's where like the awards and everything is going on. Uh, they were looking for phone numbers and addresses and, you know, they were looking at, um, I was living, living in Pennsylvania at the time, uh, you know, can we get, can we get information from you, contact stuff? And uh, we, uh, my wife and I sent them information about where we lived address and phone numbers and that kind of stuff. And, um, and they uh, put me in contact with the civilian person who's in charge of awards and I think maybe even uniforms, I don't know. Um, and she said, we wanna be able to contact you if we have any questions. Of course, now at this point, I know that dad has been put in for the Medal of Honor upgrade. That started in 2006. Um, and Unbeknownst to me, as we talked about the chain of command earlier, um, the recommendation had made its way through the chief of staff, Rudy Schwartz, uh, the secretary of defense, um, and um, uh, was on the president's desk, I guess, at the time. 
And um, earlier you said that, you know, stuff gets lost in drawers over the years. Right. Like who was the person that kicked this off and, and started that process? Was it you? No, no, no. In fact, it's been sort of publicized in the papers that it was the family and the family had nothing to kick this off. We didn't know anything about it. Um, there was another book, which I don't have with me, but the book is called One Day Too Long, which was published in 1995 by a uh, CIA analyst and and uh, Air Force veteran, and he knew that these uh, all this stuff about this site and stuff was going to be declassified. So he wrote this book, and since he worked for the CIA at the time, he had access to all these documents, and uh, he wrote the book. It wasn't about Dad. Dad's had like one or two pages in this book. It was about the site and how it came about and why it was so secret and how they put the radar up there, how they tested it. I mean, it's a great academic book. Um, and a retired airman from Bismarck, North Dakota, read the book and goes, this sounds like Medal of Honor material to me, not, not Air Force Cross. Um, and so, uh, North Dakota is an interesting state because it only has one congressperson because there aren't that many people that live there. And uh, they, the Congress people to meet their, to meet their constituents, they tend to go to like, um, you know, strip malls and Walmarts and, you know, they set up a tent or, you know, whatever, and they can come and talk to their constituents. And it's kind of a real folksy kind of a state. Um, anyway, this guy, the, the retired mass sergeant writes a letter and takes it to one of those events and gives it to the to the veterans affairs guy of the congressman's staff and say, would you please, you know, give this to the congressperson, read it and, you know, pass it along. Well, lo and behold, about a week later, uh, the congressman writes to me and says, if you'd like for us to consider your father for an upgrade of the Air Force Cross to the Medal of Honor, the request has to come from a, <clears throat> excuse me, a family member, not from one of my constituents. And so I kind of go, Medal of Honor, what is that? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew what it was. I mean, I, you know, we, we have sort of lived our life and done, gone to school and done our thing. And, you know, um, so I talked to a couple of people. I was way back in the day, there were Yahoo discussion groups. And I found a discussion group of the group that dad was involved with. And we got to talking with them. I got put in touch with the, the, the two of the three guys that dad saved, the commander for the mission and the guy who wrote the original Medal of Honor uh, recommendation and was talking to them. And uh, so we got together documents and you have to have two, two people who are still alive and there were back then for the uh, that dad saved. And they wrote their documents out, set everything off to um, uh, the congressperson, and they got everything together, put it in the package, and it made its way up the chain of command until July 5th of 2010, when actually it was July 4th. Uh, the woman from the Air Force I was telling you about this, and she called me and said, Hey, the Air Force is going to call you tomorrow about 12 o'clock. Um, I want to make sure you got the paperwork ready and they've got some questions for you. Okay, so of course, you know me, I'm working out this, what do they wanna know? 
Do I do it by date? Do I, how do I organize this stuff? Anyway, the phone calls, the phone rings, and a woman comes on the line and says, this is Katie Johnson from President Obama's office. Will you please hold for a call? How do you remember her name? I just remember her name. And if you go look up Katie Johnson, you'll see she worked for President Obama. It's nice. Not a, <laughs> uh, I was actually taking notes uh, because I didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, he came on the line and I was simply stunned with how many details that he knew. Whoever briefed him knew what the heck they were doing because wow. he, did most of, he did most of the talking. And I had sort of seen ahead a little bit that you don't call him sir, you call him Mr. President. So I was just me saying, yes, Mr. President. Yes, Mr. President. <laughs> and uh, so he, he just knew, you know, these details. But I thought, you know, I thought he was, you know, I didn't know what he was going to say, but uh, anyway, and then he finally said, I'm going to put uh, Max Dobler uh, on the line. He's the guy who makes my arrangements. And let's see if we can get your family and my family together for a ceremony. Okay. <laughs> incredible. So, Absolutely incredible. You're talking to Barack Obama on the phone and they're inviting you to the white house to honor your father. I mean, this is like a, a dream come true at this point. I mean, at this point you had no expectation for something like yeah. on this level, right? No, 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 no. So this but, is mind blowing that this is happening. It is. And my, my daughter and wife were in the same room and uh, I told them what happened. And of course I called Steve and I called Rich the first thing. And then, then uh, Max Dover called me and said, okay, your family gets a hundred people. Uh, the Air Force is gonna get 150. And I think the White House gets a hundred. So when you see the Medal of Honor ceremonies like you see here, mm -hmm. there's about 400 people in that room. That's the East Room of the White House. Oh my gosh, this isn't this so is they, a big ceremony. Yeah, they're sitting. You you can go on uh, WhiteHouse.gov and look at Medal of Honor ceremony, ceremonies and see how people are stacked next to each other in little wooden chairs. Um, but they're just you know they're trying to. Everybody wants to have somebody in there, and so I said to each of my brothers, I said, all right, each of us get. 33 visitors and who do we want and uh of course we had to have the guys who dad saved only one of them showed up uh the commander for the john daniel only one of them uh, uh the commander decided he was you know by this time these guys are 89 years old it's better getting on a plane flying to dc having you know uh so it was tough for a lot of them um so yeah it was it was a I think that was on a Tuesday. They brought us in on a Monday and they gave us a tour of Washington, D.C. The Air Force did. And then the Medal of Honor ceremony was, I think, only 21 minutes long. It was pretty short, which is fine. But the uh, Obamas met with us in the Oval Office, 15 family members uh, before oh. the ceremony. And uh, how did it feel being in the Oval Office? Oh, you know what? It's it's interesting because the guy who was like our escort saying, by the way, when you go in the Oval Office, look up because you'll see the ceiling is oval and that's why it's called the Oval Office. It's not round. It's not square. It's oval. Um, and uh, his chief of staff was in there 
Um, and that was the only other person in there besides us. Um, and it was, I was surprised with how chit chatty it was. I mean, we were just sort of, you know, back then, uh, Mrs. Obama, Michelle was growing a garden to show, you know, healthy eating. So we asked, how's the garden going? I mean, it was just. So you're, <laughs> you're, you're shooting the breeze with the president and his wife. <laughs> just shooting the breeze. Uh, of course, they took a bunch of pictures uh, in there as well. And um, uh, then the president said, look, let's go do this. Now, I have been, I, I don't know if you know or not, but I've actually worked for the Medal of Honor Foundation. And I may be one of the few people, I don't know, whatever, uh, in the United States who's ever participated in a Medal of Honor ceremony. And then I was actually invited to go to um, John Chapman's Medal of Honor ceremony. So I was sitting in one of those chairs uh, watching that ceremony with President Trump. So I both participated in one and I've watched one. And there are two, there are three kinds of ceremonies. Um, one was like ours, I'm going to say. I mean, uh, you know, we look pretty stoic there. And of course, you've got to be very serious. And it was. But we went back. I mean, we were happy this happened. You know what I mean? It mm -hmm. finally happened. Um, it's not like he just got killed yesterday. It was 42 years. Uh, we went back to the hotel and popped a bottle of champagne. Okay. So it was yeah. like a like a celebratory. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, uh, and nobody thought that was inappropriate. Another kind of ceremony is, um, uh, which is not, I guarantee you, these people don't go back to the hotel and pop a bottle of champagne, is um, maybe like one of the more, um, um, uh, I'm gonna say recent guys uh, and mom and dad who've got, you know, their 27 year old son was killed in Iraq or Afghanistan, and you know they're accepting the Medal of Honor posthumously for him. I mean, that's a pretty somber. That's a pretty somber ceremony. You know what I mean? It's not a. Yeah, and then there's of course a living recipient, um, and that's sort of in between those two scenarios I just gave you because the problem, I say the problem, the issue here. Um, I'm going to pick Sal Junta, who's an Army Medal of Honor recipient. Is uh, his parents are in the front row which is, you know, he's living, he's getting the Medal of Honor, but you know who's sitting in the back row? The parents of the guys that he couldn't save. Hmm. And so once again, that's a very different kind of scenario where it's just kind of like, um, and, you know, for many of those living recipients, um, you know, even probably dad would say the same thing. Why couldn't I save them all? You know, definitely. You know, they ended up saving or do something heroic, but, you know, couple died anyway. And um, so those are the kinds of Medal of Honor ceremonies that I kind of am familiar with. And uh, I'll say that the Chapman ceremony was pretty uh, kind of somber, but his, his, uh, his wife really did a lot of smiling and so, so did his girls, his kids did too. So, and that was great to see that, that, that they felt that, you know, uh, it was something that he he deserved and they, uh, you know, people say this all the time, Josh, nothing's gonna bring them back, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, get it, getting a medal or getting, you know, whatever is not gonna bring them back, but it's nice to see that people get recognized for what they did. And I'm not sure how much time we have left, but 
There were 12 guys that were killed on the mountain that night. Um, these are the names of them. Um, and uh, it's nice to see, I think, for them to get recognition as well, because Absolutely. You know, it wasn't just dad that was killed there. Um, it was, you know, this was the largest loss of Air Force, Air Force ground personnel during the Vietnam War. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, the only, only time there were more Air Force people killed was in plane crashes. Mm. Um, so, I mean, these are, these are heroes. I mean, they, like you said, we don't know if they, if they knew they were coming back or not, you know, um, but to, to take the steps that they did to get there, to separate from the service and then agree to do the secret mission with virtually no protection other than the height of this mountain. Yeah. Um, it's one of the bravest stories I've ever heard period. So every single one of them is a hero in my opinion. Um, including your father. So yeah, what a, what an inspirational story where this group of, of men were so patriotic and love their country so much that they're willing to put it all on the line to make a better world for us. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, this is, you know, an era, a period of our time where we're pretty much trying to keep Communist China and Russia for making their way further south. We did that during Korea uh, and then Vietnam. Um, and so it was just a time where everybody was really tense about the, the, the red Russian and China invasion. So, you know, these guys, like you said, were pretty heroic for agreeing to do this, knowing darn well that they're 15 miles away from the enemy. That's, I mean, that's, uh, I can't, again, what an, an insane story. They're right. They can see them building the road to them every day. They can see it. They can hear it. It's just, yep. it's just crazy um, how brave they were. And so I think you said something beautiful in the, in the Netflix uh, movie, you said the white house event as a, in the medal of honor ceremony made it right for him. It made it right for your father. It, it went full. It kind of went full circle. Um, and, and it warms my heart that we did make it right for him. Yep. And, and for you guys, the family who had to keep this or not know exactly what happened to their own father for, you know, three decades. It finally was made right for him. Yeah. And the Air Force has, I mean, that day. At the, at the White House was the day I finally realized that we were back in the family. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so happy that you're back in the family. I mean, I am just so happy. You, you are just in, an incredible family, absolutely incredible family. And to have the Etchburgers back, we are just so blessed, so blessed to have y'all. Thank you. We're going to start with, now this is, this is a, this is cool. Who, who asked this question? So her name is, uh, Tech Sergeant Bree McConnell, and she is one of the few medics that have uh, like an like a, a medical army like combat medal, and she has a purple heart, and she's still serving. I've only met one Air Force Purple Heart recipient, so so and you wouldn't even know it about her. Like I just know sure. because uh, I've met her and. In, in, and I saw her picture on a wall at Whiteman Air Force Base. So I said, what is, like, 
you know, who, who is this person? And so when I finally got to hear her story, she's an incredible airman with a purple heart, still serving and you'd love her. You got to meet her sometime. She's out in uh she's stationed out in Alaska. Elmendorf or? She's at okay. Elmendorf. Okay. She's at Elmendorf, which is uh, a very beautiful area, very beautiful base. So she's the, she's the NCOIC of pediatrics over at uh, J bear. And she has a two part question. And it is, and this is the first time I've read any of these. Okay. So it says, how has being the son of a medal of honor recipient shaped and impacted your life? Well, even though I'm sitting here talking, Rich answers that my brother, Rich answers this question, I think pretty well. He says, it makes you think a lot about a lot of things. And um, the fact that even though people may not know who you are, you still have to act as if they do. And so I think the whole idea of uh, the first part of the Airman's Creed, integrity, I try to do that as much as I can and try to live my life the way, I don't want to say maybe he would want me to, but the way I should. Absolutely. So, it, it, you know, um, I just, I told you about my, my Uncle Bob earlier, <clears throat> who is five years older than my, my dad. And mm -hmm. he, one time, when I was young, before any of this, I mean, I'm young, I'm, you know, 10, 12 years old. He put his finger up to me and he said, Corey, you remember, you're an expert. So here's what's cool. Uh, so Sergeant McConnell also asked her airman what she would ask. <laughs> so the airman is senior airman Kaylee Stewart. And she is the medical technician. She works there at J-Bear as well. And so she would like to ask... How would you describe in your own words what a hero is after seeing your father receive the Medal of Honor? Well, I'm going to kind of answer that question the way that I wanted to ask the question. <laughs> I, I, and the reason I say that is because I like the word that she used there, the word hero. And I think the, the problem with maybe... Um, our society in general is that we confuse an idol with a hero. Mm. Um, and I see too many times, um, you know, people talk about maybe sports figures or uh, political figures or whatever as heroes. And in my mind, there's a difference between the two. Um, and so I have met lots and lots I could probably see my part of my, in fact, that challenge coin collection over there is all the challenge coins I have from Medal of Honor recipients. Um, oh my gosh. And uh, you know, those are true heroes. Those are people who have uh, somehow um, decided that they were going to do the right thing at the right time. And so to me, that's what a hero is, is somebody who, does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Whereas idols tend to be more focused on 
I'm going to say themselves, if you don't mind me saying that. Um, and I have to tell you that when I have met with Medal of Honor recipients, um, I'm always struck with the H word. Humble. Hero. Humble. Humble and hero. Yeah, both of them. Yes. Humble. Humble. Yeah, that's a that's a huge one. Absolutely. And I, I yeah, think the, the idols are are the opposite of humble, right? Whereas exactly. the heroes are humble. They don't go flaunting it. It's kind of everyone else supporting them and in, in, in awe of what they did. But that person themselves isn't the one like blasting the story out everywhere, right? My dad sent me one, I told you. <clears throat> so he said, here's this question. And this is coming from him. My dad, which is Josh's paternal grandfather, spent okay. almost 23 years in the Air Force. He was stationed in West Germany during the time General Marshall's quote-unquote Marshall Plan was being carried out after World War II. He also served in classified missions over North Korea during the Korean conflict as a communications specialist. He performed those missions prior to me, his eldest son, being born. It is therefore hard for me or my three brothers and two sisters to comprehend what our life would have been like without him. My question to you is one that, thankfully, I never had to ask myself. What is your favorite memory of your dad, and what, if any, impact has it had on you and your family's life? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, we talked about the kicking the football earlier. Um, and, you know, I would love to tell you that I've got some, I, I do have lots of, I guess, fond memories, but most of them are non-Air Force related stuff. You know, you know how it is when you go off duty, I saw you with a picture of your daughter, you know, that, that you, your life changes from, from one, um, you know, life to another. Um, and so, Part of this question that I'm also hearing is how would my life be different if maybe he hadn't been killed? Um, and um, as I sort of alluded to earlier, uh, I never really enriched in either, uh, really ever considered going into the Air Force, the military. And sort of the context here is, remember we've been moved back to civilian status. We're living with his parents. Uh, he gets killed. We've got, and the Air Force, as I said earlier, divorces us. So we've got no um, uh, role model. We don't have people surrounding us, you know, in uniform or even that are in the military. I mean, Hamburg is a sleepy little town of 3,000 people. Uh, you know, we go to school. Uh, we work at our grandfather's store. There is no, um, you many military, what's the, closest base to there, maybe uh, um, Fort Dix, maybe, I don't know. But so there's not really any kind of Air Force, you know, or military stuff with us. Um, I went off and became the first expert to ever receive a college degree. Um, and that's the sort of, that's the sort of path that I took. All right, so let's just sort of replay this, replay the tape. What happens if dad lives? I suspect um, and I know this is being very presumptuous of me. So if I'm, if you think it is, that's fine. But I'm probably sitting here talking to you as a retired chief. 
I don't doubt that one bit. I don't doubt that one bit. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we now have a role model. We got somebody who can sort of shepherd us through the process. And I'm sure he would have uh, put us in touch with a bunch of his buddies and friends. And, you know, um, uh, I know mom and dad wanted to go to Europe after this tour uh, in Laos. So maybe we go over to, to Germany or England or someplace like that. Um, and he probably would retire. And by that time, I'm probably going to be yeah, 13, 14, 15 years old, looking for what am I going to do? And uh, I'm sure that he probably would have, you know, guided me or at least suggested. I mean, I didn't even know what it meant to be in the military. I knew what it meant to be a military kid. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just didn't really, I mean, it was a great life being on those bases. I'm telling you right now. Clark Air Base, um, Bismarck, you know, all those places were just really fun to be a kid, and uh, but but didn't really know the military setting. I mean, Dad tried to get us involved with you know what he what he did, um, and he would take us on tours of the radar and that kind of stuff. But anyway, <clears throat> I think my life would have been much different. I, th- I think I probably would have gone in the military, um, and you know. Absolutely. I mean, with your, <clears throat> with, with him guiding you, uh, as a mentor, especially as sharp as he was as dedicated as he was. And then, you know, obviously you're a very driven individual, highly intelligent. You have a lot of values yourself. I, I mean, I have zero doubts, you know, what you would have been a chief, like All hands right. down. Thank you. <laughs> and to me, you're an honorary airman. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're an airman to me. I mean, you Thanks. just are. We have one more question here. Now, this person might reach out to you to come on his show too. Uh, and his name is Nathan Coy because he just started the Wartime Leadership Podcast. Uh, and his is pretty like faith-based. Um, but I, I've listened to his first episode and he, it's fantastic. He's a great guy. So if Nathan Coy from the Wartime Leadership Podcast hits you up, he's a buddy of mine. So his question is, when your family learned of your father's death, it must have come as a major blow to life as you knew it. How did your family find resilience, specifically mental, social, physical, and spiritual in moving forward? That's a really fantastic question also. Jeez. Uh, And the answer is... uh, when dad was tapped for this mission, he was told, uh, obviously, you're going to be on civilian status, so you can move your family to any place in the United States except a military base. He said, we'll move your family anywhere. At this time, <coughs> excuse me, we were living in Illinois, as I said, and so there are two options here. Mom was from Utah, as I said earlier, and dad was from this little town of Hamburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and without putting too fine a point on this, there's a reason that mom wanted to marry dad, um, a little bit different kind of a life in Utah. Uh, times were tough. Um, she was one of nine children, you know, living in pretty much, I wanna say squalor, but you know, it was um, not as, you know, 
times were tough is what I'm mm. going to say. This is, this is night, the middle of 1950s. Mm. And so dad decides he's going to move us back to Hamburg, Pennsylvania. So now who do we have there? We've got his mother, his father. Again, he, his father runs the, the five and dime. His mother's a stay-at-home mom. Uh, got his brother, who's five years older. Uh, his wife, an aunt of mine. And then you have to also realize um, that since dad grew up in Hamburg and there was only 44 people in the, the class, the senior class of his high school, uh, there's all these guys and women that he knows as well. So it's a pretty tight knit, cohesive community. And the answer to the question is family. The answer is family. His mom and dad sort of take us under uh, their wing and his best buddy from high school shows up with a station wagon filled with fishing rods and a can of worms and off Rich and I go fishing. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and so, and he knew that. that. That's what dad knew. He knew that if something happened to him, that he would have that particular um, security net, I guess you'd call it, social network uh, is the answer. So, so family and social network, I think is the real answer to that. Um, we weren't a huge, really religious family to be quite honest with you, but the local reverend at the Lutheran church, which we are, uh, came by to the house to give us his condolences. And he also um, uh, gave the speech at dad's funeral as well. And it was nice to have somebody there who, uh, once again, who knew the Expurger family, who knew who we were, and it wasn't just, I don't want to say just, it wasn't a person who shows up and goes, okay, I'll talk to the family now and I'll add some words of stuff they say to me. You know, he knew who we were. Um, and um, so that, I think that's the answer is that, is that, you know, he took us, he took us back to the place where he grew up. And even though we didn't really have a lot of our friends, we end up, we ended up making a bunch of his friends. I'm going to end with one more thing. Uh, Dad went to school in, obviously in Hamburg, and then Rich and I started school. And one of the pretty cool things was we had a lot of the teachers that Dad had. No. Yep. They knew us. Wow. And this is where, as I said earlier, this is where Bob said to me with a pointed finger, remember you're an extroverter, mm. that you have to, you know, Everybody knows who you are, and you can't be acting a fool. And, um, you know, it's Hamburg, and, you know, Bob worked at a bank, Grandpa ran the store. Um, and so they were, you know, their livelihood depended on, you know, people coming in and, and you know, frequenting the bank and the store and that kind of stuff. And if you, you know how kids are, you, you talked about your struggles when you first started. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, when you first start out, um, you don't know about these things. And that that's where it really paid off, uh, especially, and I don't want to harp on this too much, especially because the Air Force had divorced us and we didn't really have any, I don't want to say no support. We had financial support. Like I said, they gave everything to mom that, that they said they would. But like I said, you don't have people showing up and saying, hey, let's go on a picnic and let's do this and let's do that. It's like, right. So I think that's important. 
Definitely. And I'm glad that, you know, thanks for sharing that too. The importance of like not getting through it on your own, having family, friends, support, and just surrounding yourself with love. And yeah, there's a lot of healing in that. Um, And so I'm very thankful that, you know, in the aftermath, you at least had that you had each other and, and your uncle Bob kind of started that instilled that pride in in the name, you know? So, wow, Corey, uh, Amazing conversation with you. I think we spoke for two hours. <laughs> I think we're talking I'm a I talker. I, I was just, I mean, I didn't even know how our conversation was going to go because the story was just so powerful <clears throat> to me. And then I have, I'm, I have the book, I'm seeing his face, I'm wearing the pin. And so it was, uh, it was very powerful. It's someone who I've thought about year after year as I studied for rank and, and read about. And, and then after watching the Netflix show right before talking to you, it was just like, I, I knew this is going to be a long episode and I'm so thankful that you spent time with me, Corey, but sure. I guess I just want to end with just saying that, you know, I'm so honored that we're talking today on March 11th, um, which is the day your father passed away and we're, and I'm, and I'm taking today, to talk to you, to honor him, to remember him. And I'm so proud of you, Corey, and your family for, you know, when the Air Force opened the door, you took it without a second thought and you're there for airmen the way your dad was there for airmen. You really are. You're there taking care of people. Some of the people that aren't seen, you know, that could have been missed even by their own leadership, but, but they don't get past you. They don't get past the Edgeburgers. You guys take <laughs> care of airmen just like your dad did. And I know that he would be so damn proud of you guys and the legacy that you've carried on in his honor. I know he'd be so damn proud of you. And I'm proud of you, Corey. I'm so thankful and blessed and honored that the Etchburgers are still a part of our Air Force family. We're better because of you. Thank you so much, Corey for your time and thank you to your family for everything that you do for us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Josh, for this invitation. And uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yes, sir. All right. Well, this, this episode was dedicated to chief Etchberger right here. This man right here, we're dedicating it to him in his honor. He will never be forgotten and his legacy and values will be carried on forever. There he is. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, Josh here. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of the Hero From Podcast. And as promised, at the end of each episode, I want to try to read a review uh, from one of the Hero Front listeners. And this review was given by a friend of mine named Whitney Bryden. She's a friend of the family of me and Angie. We love her so much. Uh, and her username is WitDog4. And she said, real raw 100% relatable for everyone working in drug and alcohol addiction rehabilitation and being in recovery myself Josh's vulnerability into mental health and the stigma around it has helped me on some of my worst days I'm not in the military myself but have seen hundreds of clients from every branch suffer in silence in their life or cope through substance abuse thanking mental health is never to be talked about. Mind over matter, 
the worst type of weakness. If more people listened, I can't imagine how many relationships, families, and lives would be saved. Best part is you can listen anonymously, yet you know you're not alone. 100% recommend for all. Whitney, thank you. Uh, we love you so much. Those kind words really brighten my day, so thank you so much for sharing that. Now, the biggest thing that stands out to me about the Etchberger family is that for 42 years, they did not know the truth about their father. And for 42 years, the Air Force said, hey, sorry, he was a civilian, when that wasn't actually true. They were just pretending to be civilians, forced to have been civilians to go on this mission, as the mission did not allow for military service members. So this was kind of like their loophole. Problem was, when he passed away, they kind of backed away from the Etchberger family. And instead of getting a Medal of Honor, he got the Air Force Cross in secrecy. That wasn't even advertised. Flash forward to September 21st, 2010, Barack Obama himself presented the Etchberger family with the Medal of Honor for their father, Chief Etchberger. And what I love about Corey and the Etchbergers the most, my biggest takeaway, is that after all that time, as soon as the Air Force acknowledged Chief Etchberger's legacy and he was awarded the Medal of Honor, they opened their arms back up to the Etchberger family and embraced them. And instead of being bitter and pushing back as they had every right to, they embraced the Air Force with open arms and they've been there for our airmen ever since through the Etchberger Foundation. And the things that they have done with this foundation in their father's name is nothing short of beautiful. And for that, I salute Corey and his family. And we are so blessed to have you in our Air Force family. Thank you, Corey. And thank you to everyone who listened to this story. Let's never forget the legacy and the folks who paved the path for us and our freedom today. Thanks, everyone.